Hello to all our listeners. I'm Scott Hecker, Senior Counsel with Seifarth Shaw in DC. And this is our latest episode of the Policy Matters podcast, Feeling the Burn, Government Contractors Could Face Blacklisting Again. Happy to be here with my frequent collaborator and friend, Scott Mallory, a Labor and Employment Counsel out of our Sacramento office. Scott, I remember the days of yore uh, when President Obama issued his executive order 13673 on fair pay and safe workplaces. The government suggested the EO and its implementing regulations would improve contractor compliance with labor laws. Sounds good. But opponents tagged it the blacklisting order. Sounds bad. The EO required government contractors to report all potential labor violations as well as disclose the basis of pay to employees working on government contracts. Section one of the order, stating its policy read in part, contractors that consistently adhere to labor laws are more likely to have workplace practices that enhance productivity and increase the likelihood of timely, predictable, and satisfactory delivery of goods and services of the federal government, and helping executive departments and agencies to identify and work with contractors with track records of compliance will reduce execution delays and avoid distractions and complications that arise from contracting with contractors with track records of non-compliance. So contractors viewed reporting potential labor violations as an opportunity for the government to exclude them from future government contracts. And that's where the blacklist label came from. They would be kept from contracting with the federal government. Remind me, Scott, how Congress and President Trump reacted to the EO's implementing regulations, which were published back on August 25th of 2016. Well, first off, Mr. Hecker, I wanted to say that it is a pleasure to be back on this podcast with you. It has been quite a while. So I'm glad to be back with you. And this is a really interesting topic. I mean, agency rulemaking is is a hot topic right now. Indeed, it'll be going to SCOTUS later. And um, your specific question, I think, was how Trump would reacted to it. Well, in the first four months of Donald Trump's administration, he signed 14 Congressional Review Act resolutions from Congress undoing a variety of rules issued near the end of the Obama administration, including the one we just spoke about. The Congressional Review Act has been around since 1996. It was a part of what was called the Small Business Regulatory Enforcement Fairness Act, or SIBREFA. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it basically, it's a really simple tool that allows Congress and the president to review any federal agency action and essentially overturn it. So Joe Biden's done the same thing, right? He signed three CRA resolutions into law at the beginning of his administration, bringing the total number of repeals to 20 since 1996. The rules that Obama signed resolutions about were restoring methane emission standards that were set during the Obama administration, protecting consumers from predatory lending, and then also an EEOC rule that allows information sharing about certain discrimination that happens in the workplace. The CRA in general has a lot of sort of procedural little hurdles. For example, it's a lot better to do CRA review at the beginning of an administration because of the timeline set forth, you know, in the actual statute, which is which is relevant because we're going to talk about Mr. Sanders and and his desire to, to run this back. Right. Members of Congress have specified time periods when they must submit and act on a joint resolution. If a joint resolution disapproval is submitted, within those weird specified deadlines that are in the statute, right, and it's signed by the president, then the disapproved rule just shall not affect. 
It would not be deemed to have any effect at any time. And even certain provisions of the rule that might have already come into effect, those would also be overturned. So essentially, once the CRA review is signed by the president, it can, of course, normally be you know overridden by a two-thirds majority. But that's pretty much it. There are some other issues about it, but that is, I would say, probably the cleanest way for Congress and the president, or I should say the political branches, right, to, mm-hmm. to end any kind of agency rulemaking. Right. And so here, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Congress did pass that joint resolution. As you said, President Trump signed it. And therefore, the, the implementing regulations for that blacklisting EO did not go into effect. I understand that under the CRA, if that happens, that you can't actually, that rule's done, you said that, but you can't issue a similar rule, a substantially similar rule, unless Congress acts to grant explicit authority. So to me, that would seem like, oh, there we are, we're done with that. But that doesn't seem to be necessarily the case every time. I guess, am I right about that? And how does that kind of process go? Have we seen some come back from the dead ever? So we have seen some come back from the dead. Indeed, two rules that had previously been struck down under the CRA, both have been reissued. The rules were issued in 2016 and in the final months of the Obama administration. And those were among the rules that were overturned in the 115th Congress. So those have been reissued, but obviously in a little bit of a different form, right? So I think that the, the statute specifically says that if a joint resolution of disapproval is enacted, The Review Act provides that a rule may not be issued, or I should say reissued, in a substantially the same form. Now, the statute does not define what substantially the same form is. There is no real good case law that defines what substantially the same form is. Indeed, part of the problem with this whole substantially the same form issue is that the CRA itself does not permit judicial review in a lot of instances leaving it up to Congress to determine what is essentially a substantially similar rule, right? So it really is one of the more political pieces of legislation that we analyze as labor and employment attorneys, right? So in order to do that, there there has to be some sort of agency sort of hoop jumping to make it look different, essentially. That's the technical term, I think, hoop jumping. Indeed, yeah. That's, yeah. It's in every law book I've written or right. read. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who's the chairman of the Senate's Budget Committee, and he actually um, sent a letter back uh, at the end of April to President Biden and then held a committee hearing on May 5th looking to sort of hold businesses accountable for their labor law violations and bring back this kind of idea of precluding them from contracting with the federal government if they have you know, a record of labor law violations or poor treatment of, of labor. And when he was confronted with that question about, hey, what about the CRA? Because remember that yeah. you know, blacklisting you from Obama's time? He said, there's always a way around it if you're strong and determined to do it. What we have to do is have the Biden administration be as aggressive as they can. So can the Biden administration be strong and determined enough to get around a prior CRA disapproval? I mean, we've heard President Biden express his intention to be the most pro-union president in American history. So how worried do you think our clients, employers should be that Bernie could succeed in pushing this administration to bring back that government blacklisting rule? So I definitely I would say that there should be some concern. Right. 
But essentially, it's a really difficult thing to do. And if Bernie Sanders really wanted to press this idea, it really should have been pressed in January of 2020 based on sort of the statutory deadlines that are in the CRA. But that being aside, there are different ways that sort of an agency can change. So if an agency decides to reissue a rule, it could just explain the changes made in light of the CRA provision. You can do that by looking at the legislative history of the joint resolutions that were passed. Perhaps some senator before you know passing the resolution said something along the lines of, we need to get rid of this regulation because of X, Y, and Z. And then the agency can say, well, we issued a new regulation that got rid of X, Y, and Z, which was the reason it was overturned in the first place. So that's one option for instituting a new rule. Now, the CRA also does permit, if Congress specifically passes a law saying that an agency can reissue a rule, then the agency can do that, right? That is a congressional act. But as we know all too well over the last 10 years, Congress does not do much. Right. So I do not see Congress passing a law allowing them to reissue another rule that was overturned. I I think interestingly, though, in this circumstance, it is a little bit easier because if everything of the CRA is followed, then it can alter the filibuster rules, making passage in the Senate a little bit easier. Right. (laughs) Okay. So, so again, the CRA is very complicated in its sort of technical requirements, but simple in its overall requirement, right? So, I guess the bottom line answer to your question is it depends, right? That's right. what lawyers <laughs> always say. But if I was, the, you know, I think I am a little bit concerned that this will push the Biden administration to push the DOL, to push the EEOC to try to do more as far as it comes to this government contracting. But it's going to be really, really hard. And there are, I would say, significant issues facing the country that might be held in priority over this. Yeah. And I I guess one other note, you mentioned sort of the executive agency piece. And back on February 17th, actually, the Department of Agriculture published a notice of proposed rulemaking that included a section requiring contractors to certify that they're in compliance with all applicable labor laws and that to the best of their knowledge, their subcontractors and suppliers are also in compliance. So USDA indicated it would vigorously pursue corrective action in the event of a violation of labor laws made in the provision of supplies and or services under this or any government contract. So that NPRM is placing responsibility on contractors to promptly report adjudicated evidence of noncompliance and the USDA, USDA explains it considers certification under that clause to be certification for the purposes of the False Claims Act. So yeah. that sounds a lot like the certification that you need to make. And it sounds a lot like, hey, maybe we could blacklist you if you can't make this certification or we don't accept your bid if you can't make this certification. And you might have exposure under the False Claims Act if you wrongly submit or certify. And that NPRM then goes on to list some of our favorite L&E laws that would be you know, implicated here, including FLSA, the OSH Act, the NLRA, Davis-Bacon, the SCA, EO 11246, FEMLA, yeah. Title VII, the ADA, and the ADEA. There are others, but those are some big ones that we deal with, as you mentioned, as L&E attorneys. And if you have any sort of violation there, at least this NPRM seems to be trying to bring back that concept. And I wonder how much the administration, rather than doing a broader EO, could just sort of agency by agency creep this idea back into the mix. 
Now, again, if they wanted to do that, they probably should have started in January 2020. <laughs> uh, it, especially with, you know, the way the midterms are shaping up. I Just politically, it's going to be really, really difficult to do any of this, right? But I think an agency-by-agency agency approach will pass have better muster to pass sort of a CRA issue because each agency can say, well, enforcement's different, scope's different. We're, you know, every single time they can do that because each agency has its own individual characteristics. So that might make it easier to do, but harder administratively to get each agency to press something like that. Right. I don't know. It's going to be difficult no matter what, but but it's a possibility. It, it for sure is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to your point, I, there's the issue. I think you were alluding to the substantial similarity issue. If they can point to differences and it's not yeah. sort of like this top down thing, but somehow bubbled up among each agency, maybe exactly. you get around that a little bit. I think in general, you know, with the government contracting issues, though, something we always try and mention uh, when we're talking in that sort of realm is that we do have the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act out there, commonly known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or BIL. There's a 1.2 trillion allocated to federally funded infrastructure improvements. And so government contracting activity is going to increase. Enforcement among the agencies you mentioned and others that have authority over, you know, these kinds of things is likely to increase. So these are all issues to be paying attention to for our clients. And I know you alluded to this, so I'll, I'll yeah. ask you, you know, right as we get towards the end here, you talked about the Supreme Court considering basically the administrative state coming up. Yeah, there's term. There's an EPA case, Environmental Protection Agency case, that will be decided and it'll come down in June. I think that maybe the tenor of this conversation would be a little bit different in June if they get rid of what's called Chevron deference, essentially, where courts must give deference to agency rulemakings, right? That could possibly be out the window, right? And if that happens, then you and I need to have a very different podcast in June or July. <laughs> well, I'm happy to circle back and have that conversation if and when we see that. But to your point, I, I think we have seen some of that agency deference being chipped away in recent yeah. years. There are a lot of complaints about the sort of breadth and depth of the administrative state. And it may be that agencies just don't have as much deference paid to their determinations and their decision making as we've seen since Chevron. So it'll be interesting, again, to keep an eye on that. Obviously, Scott, great to reconnect on the Policy Matters podcast today. Thanks to all our listeners. And please feel free to contact your friendly neighborhood Seifarth attorney with any questions on this issue or for any other additional legal support. Have a great day. Indeed. Thank you.